Well, hey everybody, I'm Adam Shell, the pastor at Melbourne Heights, and welcome to our sermon podcast. In this episode of our podcast, we are celebrating Easter Sunday. And I know that sometimes Easter can feel like it's just a great big old chore because there are baskets that you need to fill, there's eggs that you need to hide, there might be new outfits that you have to pick out. But in this week's episode, we're going to remind you what Easter is really all about. And Easter isn't just a day where we remember a historic event. Easter isn't just a day where we talk about a moment that defined a generation. Easter is more than just a story that we read about in the Bible. Easter is personal. Because on Easter, when Jesus rose from the dead, it shows us how much God loves every single one of us. God loves us so much that he sent his one and only son into this world to lay down his life for us so that nothing can separate us from the love that God has for us. So let's get right into this episode's sermon and talk about what Easter is all about. It was a Thursday evening, and the sun was just beginning to set. But even though another day was drawing toward an end, people weren't really winding down. You see, there was a lingering buzz that had been growing in the air over the course of the last week as people all around the world anxiously awaited the biggest news story of their lives to break. And then it happened. At just after 7 p.m. on August 14, 1945, President Harry S. Truman took to the airwaves to deliver a nationwide address in which he would let the American people know that Emperor Hirohito had accepted the terms of the Potsdam Declaration, that Japan had surrendered, and that World War II had officially come to an end. Do you remember where you were the day that that news story broke? Okay, of course, it happened more than 80 years ago, so many of us weren't even alive at that point. But this was a defining moment for what has been called the silent generation, a moment that many in that generation would never forget. Mendoza was in Radio City Music Hall in Manhattan that day when a clamoring crowd interrupted the show that he was watching. As the lights came back up in that theater, Shouts of, the war is over, echoed throughout the hall. So George Mendoza and a few of his fellow sailors and soldiers, they took to the streets of New York. And George Mendoza celebrated the news that World War II had ended with this iconic moment. He took to the streets of New York and found a random nurse to kiss. And the nurse would later go on to describe this moment as a jubilant moment that wasn't much of a kiss. So the day that World War II came to an end was a day that George Mendoza would never forget. But he wouldn't forget the day that World War II officially came to an end because of its historical significance. And he wouldn't forget the day that World War II came to an end because it was a moment that could define his generation. No, George Mendoza will always remember the day that World War II came to an end because of its personal impact on him. George Mendoza was an active duty sailor. So the end of World War II meant that he would never have to return to war again. The end of World War II meant that he would never be awakened in the middle of the night by an alarm blaring toward him of an upcoming attack. The end of World War II meant that he would never have to watch as one of his fellow sailors or soldiers lay down their life on a battlefield. So for George Mendoza, this was an event that changed everything. 
It was a Sunday night, with a quarter moon shining in the night sky. This was a time of day when children ordinarily would have been fast asleep in their beds, and their moms and dads would have been settling down to watch the late local news. But not on this night. On this night, moms and dads and their kids, and maybe even a few of their neighbors, would be huddled together in living rooms with every eye glued to the TV screen. Because they were awaiting a moment that was more than a week in the making. The truth of the matter is this moment was more than eight years in the making. On this day, a president's ambition would become a national achievement. And it happened at 10.56 p.m. Eastern Time on July 20th, 1969, when Neil Armstrong would take one small step for man and one giant leap for mankind. Do you remember where you were on that Sunday night? Chances are that if you were over 60, you remember exactly where you were, because the moon landing was an event that would come to define the baby boomer generation, an event that many in that generation will never forget, like Mark Polanski. Mark Polanski was spending that summer in New York with his grandmother and his aunt. And he just so happened to be sitting in the mezzanine section in Yankee Stadium when the public address announcer for the New York Yankees, Bill Shepard, interrupted the game to announce to the entire crowd there of 34,000 people that they would be happy to know that Apollo 11 had safely landed on the moon. Well, the crowd erupted in a roar, and soon everyone there was standing on their feet and singing an impromptu rendition of America the Beautiful. Mark Polanski would go home and he would watch footage of Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin descending the ladder and becoming the very first people to set foot on the moon. So this was a day that Mark Polanski would never forget. But he wouldn't remember the moon landing because of its historical significance. And he wouldn't remember the moon landing because it was a moment that would come to define his generation. No, Mark Polanski will always remember the day that Apollo 11 landed on the moon because of its personal impact on him. The moon landing inspired Mark Polanski to become an astronaut himself. In almost 32 years to the day that the Apollo 11 landed safely on the moon, Mark Polanski was on board the space shuttle Atlantis, flying a mission for NASA. In all, Mark would fly three separate missions for NASA, all of which contributed to the construction of the International Space Station. So this was an event that changed everything for Mark Polanski. It was a cold Thursday night in November, with a clock slowly ticking toward midnight. Now, on an ordinary day, there would be no good reason for a person to have been out at that time of day or in that type of weather. But on this particular November night, a crowd was gathering. And all more than 20,000 people would be standing outside waiting for a gate to open. But they weren't gathering outside of a Best Buy waiting for a Black Friday sale to start. And they weren't waiting for the sales clerks to open up the doors so that they could start their holiday shopping. Now, these 20,000 people were lined up on the eastern side of the most infamous wall in the world. They were waiting for armed soldiers to open up the gate. They were waiting for their chance to cross over the border between East and West Germany for the very first time. They were waiting for communism to fall. And then it happened. And just before midnight on November 9, 1989, in Berlin, Germany, 
those soldiers opened the gate, and soon the Berlin Wall was torn down. Now, that happened about 7 o'clock Eastern time here in the United States of America. And even though I was just seven years old when the Berlin Wall started to be torn down, I still remember images of that wall being torn apart, flashing across our TV screen. Do you remember where you were when the Berlin Wall was torn down? Angela worked with us. Angela had spent her entire life in East Germany. But in the week leading up to November 9th, she could feel a palpable tension in the air. She knew that thousands of her fellow East Germans were going to be waiting at the wall, afraid that they might, that the soldiers might close the gates every bit as quickly as they opened them. But Angela Merkel didn't join the crowd. Instead, she spent that cold Thursday night in November, the same place she spent every Thursday night, in a sauna, relaxing. Afterwards, she went to a local bar where she celebrated the news with a few of her friends before she actually went to the Berlin Wall herself. And even though she was a 35-year-old physicist at the time who had no idea what the future held for her, the night the Berlin Wall came down is a night that Angela Merkel will never forget. But she won't forget the night that the Berlin Wall came tumbling down because of its historical significance. She won't forget the night that the Berlin Wall fell because of it was a moment that would define her generation. Now, Angela Merkel will always remember the night the Berlin Wall fell because on that night, East Germany and West Germany were reunited as one democratic state. And not even 16 years later, in 2005, Angela Merkel would be elected as Chancellor of Germany, holding the highest office in the land. So this was an event that changed everything for Angela Merkel. It was a quiet Sunday morning. The sun hadn't even begun to creep toward the horizon yet. Most people were fast asleep in their beds, completely unaware that anything important would be happening in the world around them. But that wasn't the case for one woman. She had spent a restless night tossing and turning, eagerly awaiting morning to come. Because morning meant that she could leave her house. Morning meant that she could safely walk through the streets of her city. Morning meant that the gates of the city would be opened up and she could pass through them. Morning meant that she could finally finish a job she started 36 hours earlier. So she was up long before the sun was that Sunday morning. And as soon as the first hint of light touched the sky, she was already out the door, headed to finish her errand. Little did she know that as she walked out her door that morning, that she would soon be an eyewitness and have a front row seat to an event that would not just define her generation. She would have a front row seat to an event that changes everything. Because on that morning, Mary Magdalene was walking to Jesus' tomb. And when she arrived, she found it was empty. The Gospel of John, or John's biography of Jesus, recalls for us how this event unfolded. So I want to share with you the way that John tells the story. We're going to be looking at John chapter 20 this morning. We'll start reading in verse 1. Here's what John writes. He says, Early in the morning of the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. She ran to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord from the tomb, 
we don't know where they've put it. Peter and the other disciple left to go to the tomb. They were running together, but the other disciple ran faster than Peter, and he was the first to arrive at the tomb. Bending down to take a look, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. Following him, Simon Peter entered the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there. He also saw the face cloth that had been used on Jesus' head. It wasn't with the other cloths, but was folded up in its own place. Then the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, arrived in the tomb. And he also went inside. He saw and believed. They didn't yet understand the scripture that Jesus must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying. Mary stood outside near the tomb crying. As she cried, she bent down to look into the tomb. She saw two angels dressed in white, seated where the body of Jesus had been, one at the head and one at the foot. The angels asked her, Woman, why are you crying? She replied, They've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they put him. As soon as she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she didn't know. It was Jesus. From September 11th to the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, from Rosa Parks refusing to give up her seat on that bus in Montgomery to Martin Luther King Jr. delivering his I Have a Dream speech on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, from Secretariat winning the Triple Crown to the Miracle on Ice, we have all witnessed events that have defined generations. We have all witnessed events that have defined generations. And these are the kind of events that when they happen, we all seem to remember exactly where they were when we, exactly where we were when they took place. But if we're being completely honest, most of the time as these events were actually unfolding, we had no idea just how significant they truly were. The same thing is true for Mary. Mary had woken up early that Sunday morning intending to go to Jesus' tomb to finish preparing his body for burial. But when she arrived at the tomb, she found that the stone had been rolled away. She found that the tomb was empty. And she couldn't comprehend what had just happened. She knew that something important had taken place, but she couldn't understand exactly what it was. So Mary, she runs off to find Peter and John, who are two of Jesus' closest followers and his closest friends. And she tells them about what has taken place. And she explains to them that she fears that someone has stolen the body of Jesus. Even as Peter and John go in and they examine what has happened and they investigate the tomb for themselves, Mary is standing outside, struggling to figure out exactly what has taken place. Even after Peter and John leave, and Mary has the chance to talk with angels and see Jesus with her very own eyes, she still can't wrap her mind around the importance of the event that has just taken place. Because of what John tells us, when John says, she didn't know it was Jesus. But all of that's going to change as the story continues. So let's pick back up in the Gospel of John in John chapter 20 and see what happens next. We'll pick up in verse 15. Here's what John writes. He says, Jesus said to me, 
woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? Thinking that he was the gardener, she replied, Sir, if you've carried him away, then tell me where you've put him, and I will go and get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. All it took was Jesus calling her by name for Mary's distress to vanish. She had gone to the tomb that day to prepare Jesus' body for burial. But here she experiences something beyond her farthest imagination. She had gone to the tomb that day to prepare Jesus' body for burial. But now she is face to face with her living Lord. It's a moment that Mary would never she wouldn't remember this moment because of its historical significance. And she wouldn't remember this moment because it was a moment that could define her generation. No, Mary would never forget that moment because of the personal impact it had on her. Because when Jesus spoke her name, she realized that her Rabboni, her teacher, is alive. We're starting to see that Easter is more than just a historical event. Easter is more than just an event that could have defined one generation of people. Easter is more than just a story that you read about inside the Bible. Easter is a story that's bigger than Mary or Peter or John. Easter is a story that's bigger than all of us, and Easter is a story that impacts every one of us. Easter is an event that changes Easter is an event that changes everything. I know that's what Easter has done for me. Now, my story starts on a warm afternoon in the summer of 1989 when I was seven years old. And I was out playing in the backyard, playing the made-up games that just about any seven-year-old would have been playing. But all the while that I was out there in my backyard playing, I had deeper thoughts that were running through my mind. Now, I had grown up in the church. My first Sunday in church was literally Easter Sunday when I was just a few days old. So I grew up going to Sunday school. I grew up going to children's church. So I learned the words to Psalms like Father Abraham and Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. And, of course, Jesus loves me. I knew the Bible about as well as any seven-year-old could have known the Bible from Genesis to Revelation or at least the parts that are appropriate to teach a second grader. So I knew the stories. But everything that I learned in church felt like it was just historical information. All of the stories that I heard felt like they were somebody else's stories, that even though I thought they were interesting, they didn't make any impact on my life. But all of that changed on that warm afternoon in the summer of 1989. Because that afternoon I would quit playing my made-up games, walking around my family's desk. And as I walked around, deep realization set in. It changed everything. As I walked around, I realized that God was more than just a character that you read about inside of the Bible. I realized that Jesus was more than just someone who died on a cross. That warm afternoon in the summer of 1989, I felt like God had called my name. And I realized that God is more than just a character you read about in the Bible. God is the one who loves you more than you could possibly imagine. Loves you more than anyone or anything ever could. 
realize that Jesus wasn't just someone who died on the cross. Jesus laid down his life for me on the cross so that nothing could separate me from the love that God has for me. On that warm summer day in 1989, I realized that I needed God in my life. I invited God into my life, giving God control of my life. And God has been at work in my life ever since, challenging me, changing me, recreating me, so that I can become the person that God made me to be. And that person is someone who is more like Him. But it all started in a moment. A moment when I realized that the story that we have come together today to celebrate, the story of Easter, the story of Jesus' resurrection, It's more than just a historically important event. It's more than just a moment that could define a generation. I realized that day that when it comes to Easter, Easter is personal. And I realized that Easter is an event that shows how much God loves me. Easter is an event that shows how much God loves me. Why don't you say those words with me? We'll say them together on the count of three, but I want you to say them like you actually mean them, okay? All right. One, two, three. Easter is an event that shows how much God loves me. Have you realized that yet? Have you realized that Easter is an event that shows how much God loves me? realize that you need God in your life? Have you turned your life over to God so that God can challenge you and change you and recreate you into the person that God made you to be? Have you been truly changed by Easter? Because Easter is more than just a historic event. Easter is more than just a moment that could define a generation. Easter is personal. It's a story of God who loves you. Let's pray together. God, as we come to you in this time of prayer, we are so thankful for Easter. We are so thankful for the events that took place on this day so long ago. When Mary went to that tomb and found that the stone was rolled away, that Jesus wasn't there. We're thankful that after everything he experienced on the cross on Good Friday, that Jesus rose from the grave, that he was resurrected on Easter. But God, we're not thankful for this because it's a historically important event. We're not thankful for this because this was an event that could have defined a generation. We're thankful for Easter because of the personal impact it makes on each of us. Easter shows us just how deep your love is for all of us and the lengths that you will go to to make sure that nothing can separate us from your love and from your purpose and plan for our lives. So God, my prayer for all of us today is that we've realized what Easter is about. We've allowed Easter to truly change us. That it has allowed us to turn our lives over to you, realizing how much we need you and your love in our lives. Is this story? Is this story that's personal 
we can change every single one of us. So let us be changed by the good news of Easter. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Well, hey, it's Adam again, and I just want to thank you for tuning in to this episode of our sermon podcast. And I hope that this episode has reminded you of what Easter is really about. Easter is personal. Easter is a time that shows us how much God loves each of us and how much God loves you. So if you haven't started your relationship with God yet, I want to encourage you to do that. And you can find out more about how you can begin your relationship with God by visiting our website at mhbclouisville.com. While you're there, check out the Next Step page. And on that page, you'll find more information about what you need to do to begin your relationship with God. And I want you to know that all of us here at Melbourne Heights are here to support you however we can as you begin your relationship with God. Well, in our next episode, we are starting into a brand new series of sermons that are that's called The Bible Doesn't Say That. And we have all heard phrases that people say all the time that sound like they could be coming from the Bible, but they're really not. So throughout the series, we're going to be exploring some of these common phrases that you hear people in the church use all the time, but they're not really in the Bible. And we're going to see that not only are they not in the Bible, we're going to see how they can be damaging to our faith and show us things that are just aren't true about God. So I hope that you'll join us when our next episode drops. As always, that episode will be sent straight to your favorite podcasting app if you subscribe to our podcast. And don't forget, you don't have to wait for next Tuesday for another sermon. You can join us every Sunday morning at mhbclouisville.com slash live. We would love to have you with us. Well, until next time, I hope that you guys have a great week. I will be praying for you, and we'll see you back here soon for another sermon podcast.